I want to invite our children that are taking part of Children's Church to make their way out. If your parents desire you to be a part of that, if you'd make your way up to the front out here by the piano, and appreciate all those that uh, minister with them week after week. And while they're going, let me just mention that in tonight's service, after a couple-month break, we're returning back to our Philosophy of Ministry series. And we'll be in the place tonight of considering very specifically uh, why do we care so much about music? Uh, What is uh, our thought process behind being discerning about music and musical style, not just not just the text of music, but the sound of music. And, and so both corporately as well as in our own personal life, that's where we're headed tonight. So certainly invite you back to sing together and fellowship together and, and spend time in the Word together. Go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. If you've been with us the last several weeks, you know that we've had something of a New Year's emphasis in these morning services, and this is the third time that we have turned our attention to the first two verses of Romans chapter 12. And these well-known verses are, uh, they, they serve as a transition in the book of Romans. Uh, the first 11 chapters, we kind of overviewed quickly even last week, but in the first 11 chapters, Paul wanted his readers to understand why the gospel is good news. Right from the beginning, that was the subject, the gospel. But why is the gospel good news? But beginning with chapter 12, he then even says, I beseech you, therefore, on the basis of all of that gospel proclamation in chapters 1 through 11, he he exhorts believers to live a certain way in light of what they know and believe about the gospel. And this life that he's going to exhort believers to live is not a life of, you know, drudgery in the midst of duty, all right? I'm, I'm saved and God's done all this, so I've just got to live a certain way. The reality is at the end of verse 2, it is described as, as a life lived, and notice these expressions, that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Brethren, a life lived in the will of God is the only kind of life that is truly the good life. (laughs) The good, acceptable, perfect will of God. If you want to live the good life in 2020, it'll be a life lived in the center of God's will for your life. And right before all of those expressions regarding the will of God, again in verse 2, right down towards the end, you can see that, that word prove. These things are written in these first couple of verses that ye may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. It, it, that word is used to describe the process of testing the genuineness of, of precious metals. So there was a proving process, and there is a proving process that reveals the difference, for instance, between you know, pure gold and fool's gold. We mentioned this phrase several times. All that glitters is not what? Okay? All that glitters is not gold. And, and in 2019, there were things that people pursued that looked so bright and so shiny, and they were just sure there's real value, and, and this is what's going to make life really satisfying, pleasing, beautiful. And, and, and they got down the road to find out it was as cheap as trinket jewelry. 
And people are going to do the same thing in 2020 if they do not apply God's proving process. And, and for God's honor and for our good, God lays out a proving process for us to live in the center of His will in 2020. And the opening words of verse 1 start with the assumption that, that the readers that he's exhorting are true believers. You can see that he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. The Apostle Paul's assuming these are brothers in Christ he's writing. And they have, by the grace of God, going into that next phrase, they, they have been personal recipients of God's mercy in Christ. And uh, that was three weeks ago now, but I'll just pause here to say again, you cannot arrive at the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God in terms of your, of your life without, first of all, being saved. And if you're here this morning and there is any doubt, there is any question about that, uh, perhaps question that comes from our own mind and some insecurities we may have, you need to put on the helmet of salvation, or, or maybe you're here this morning and there's some question because, quite frankly, the marks of a saving faith are really not seen in your life. But you have some questions, and when they come up, you try to, you know, just kind of push them back down to talk about it. You know, it would be embarrassing or whatever. I just want to say to you, the Spirit and the Bride say, come, today is the day of salvation. You cannot know God's very best for your life if this matter of, of do you possess a saving faith is not settled. That's the first step. But the reality is that we all know people that we believe to be genuine, born-again believers who have missed out on God's very best. And one potential reason is that they have not lived with the next step that's given here in verse number 1. They have not presented their bodies a living sacrifice with all of those characteristics, which is, at the end of the verse, your reasonable service, your, your worship to the Lord. The fact is that a body that is yielded very practically to just whatever God would have for me, that is not a requirement to be a missionary. That is not a requirement to be a pastor. That's not a requirement to be in full-time service. The fact is that is a requirement for anybody that would know God's very best for their life. And many people, born again by saving faith in Christ, are just frankly not living yielded. In, in practical terms, to the will of God for their life. But I'm guessing, again, that, that most of us, many of us at least, have known people that we believe to be born again. And, and perhaps they made a decision maybe in a camp-type setting or special meetings in a church or, or, or a missions conference or, or something of that nature. And, and they have communicated whatever words they use. They've communicated a desire to just surrender their entire life to the Lord. And we believe they're saved. We rejoice when we heard that kind of expression. And yet their life today is far removed from anything anyone would say is God's very best. Toward the end of my seven years as a youth pastor in Wisconsin, we were doing some, uh, our cleaning crew and the church and maintenance staff was doing some major restructuring of storage and, and they came across a box with a variety of things they thought I might be interested in and one of those items was actually a, a, a stack of decision cards. We had 200 or so teens in, in our youth group and and so significant uh, ministry opportunity. And, and they gave, a, 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 gave me a stack of decision cards 
from a camp week that our Christian school had attended before I had arrived at the church. And I read a multitude of, of decision cards from young people who surrendered to the Lord's will. In general, whatever God would have me to do, or some of them surrendering specifically to full-time service, and some of them were very specific. They, they believed God would have them surrender to foreign missions. And when I was reading those cards, I was able to just rejoice that some of the young people, when they had filled out that card, some of those young people were in eighth grade. And uh, by the time I was reading them, they were nearing the end of, of Bible college, and they were continuing to live out a surrendered life to the Lord. And it was just a wonderful thing. And now I have the, I have the extended vantage point of decades, and, and I can see some of those young people wrote on those decision cards in eighth grade what they were surrendering to do, and they're serving in Germany, and they're serving all over the country, and they're serving all over this world. And it's a thrill to, to see them continue to live out that kind of commitment. But in that stack of decision cards were, were testimonies of some other young people who reported the same, the same decisions. But at the time I was reading the cards, they were already under church discipline. For immorality, in one case for just all-out rebellion against parents and, and other authority figures and and, and there were sad, tragic stories like that. And I wish that kind of testimony was only isolated to the few that I read of in, in our particular setting. But those type of stories could, could be told within the context of any church. What, what makes the difference? Why did, why did some that communicated, I'm surrendering my life to the Lord for whatever he wants, why did some, whatever walk of life they go into, why do some continue to live out that surrender and others be far different from that? You know, that, uh, that's a question that, that we're not going to be able to answer with just one possibility here this morning. I mean, some have, some have suggested, you know, they weren't sincere as others that made the decisions. And, and, and maybe that's the case. And we could talk about multiple other factors. But, but I want to suggest one that comes right out of the flow of our text this morning. And that is that some of those that were apparently born again... And I think sincere in communicating, I want my life to be, count, be counted for God. I, I, want to, I want to serve God with my life. But some of those that communicated all those things did not add a necessary ingredient, which is found in the opening phrase of verse number two. In keeping with that opening statement, in some cases they failed to combat conformity to the world. Notice verse 2 says, And be not conformed to this world. Brethren, by the mercy of God, living sacrifice, be not conformed to this world. And I've actually worded it even, if you saw in our uh, service guide, in our bulletin this morning, combating conformity to the world. I, I don't often even emphasize titles of my messages like that, but I, I've worded this one this way very carefully on account of the grammar in the, in the text and, and because of what's at issue. So in, in grammar classes, you learn about the difference, right, between active voice and passive voice. So active voice involves the subject doing the action. You know, I could say, last night I ate some pizza. 
Yay, and that would be active voice. I'm the subject, I'm doing that action. Passive voice, on the other hand, involves the subject being acted upon. Right? So I could say, all that pizza was eaten by... If you're in my home, you know I could fill in a couple voices that would be the usual suspects, right? <laughs> but I, I'm not going to do that this, this morning. But in that sentence, you know, pizza is the subject. That pizza was eaten by... Pizza is the subject, but it's the receiver of the action. Somebody's eating that pizza. The pizza's being acted on. All right, now why that explanation? Because the verb tense in Romans 12, 2 is passive. I should say the, the voice of the verb is a passive. <clears throat> and, and because it is a command in the text, the subject is understood to be the reader. All right, so if you look at it again there, the command is, you readers, don't allow yourself to be pressed into this world's mold. What it's communicating is that the world is actually the active aggressor. And, and the point of working through all of that explanation, and even if I lost you in the grammar lesson, all right, don't miss this. The point is this, you don't have to pursue worldliness to end up being worldly. Okay? The world is actually bringing its pressure to you. And all you have to do is fail to battle against it, and you can end up worldly. And I was already thinking down the path of, of, of my youth pastor days, but... On several occasions in youth ministry, I had opportunity to try to sound a warning to teens, in some cases opportunity teens and their parents, that, and say, I fear that this young person, I fear that you're headed down a worldly path. And sometimes, you know, there would just be an absolute denial of that, and, and I would try to point to an area or two that I thought was giving indication of worldliness. And several times the response would be something like, look, there's nothing immoral what I'm do- with what I'm doing. Okay? And even this, I know in my heart that I'm not a rebel. And I could, and I, right now there is a picture of a communication in my office with a certain teenager who I was trying to say, look, I'm concerned there's changes going on. What, what's, what's happening here? What's behind all this? And look, I haven't done anything immoral, and I'm not a rebel. And in some cases, and in this one, actually pointing out, it's amazing how teens will tell on each other, right? <laughs> I'm not a rebel like, and started to name a couple of this individual's friends. I mean, now they're rebels. I'm not a rebel. And, and the point in saying that is, in saying, you know, I'm not a rebel, they didn't possibly think they could be worldly. And again, I say this from some distance, and I say it, I say it with a tender heart, but I would also say this, when parents kind of bought that line, so to speak, that a kid was presenting, Almost 100% of the time, there was tragedy down the road. 
And brethren, purposeful rebellion and increasing worldliness are not the same dynamics. Let me say that again. Purposeful rebellion and increasing worldliness are not the same dynamics. You don't have to set out to be a rebel to end up being worldly. And, and the situation is not restricted to teenagers. If any of us fail to kind of garrison ourselves against the inroads of a world, and think about this, you know this is true. The world is bringing the battle to us in every public arena. The world is bringing the battle to our doorstep through its printed media. And the world is bringing the battle right into every place of our lives through mass media. The world is bringing the pressure to us. And if we fail to garrison ourselves against it, we could end up being a victim without knowing it until the battle scars are very evident. The expression, again, is passive in the text, but it's also negative, meaning the command is don't stay passive. Don't remain passive. If you and I remain passive in the face of worldly pressure and we do not battle in the power of of the Lord's might through his wisdom, we will suffer wounds and, and we will miss God's very best for our life. And some of our failure in in combating worldliness is on account of a failure to properly define and identify what the world even is. And I'm going to move outside of our text for a little bit this morning and and see an outline description of the world. Would you go over to Ephesians? You don't have to go far. But Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. In the opening verses of Ephesians 2... Remind us that life, apart from God's salvation, is a life of living death. I mean, look at Ephesians 2 and verse 1. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. We are all born spiritually dead. That's why everyone has to be born again, born from above. And the nature, though, of of life, do you know that life apart from God is not living it up? It's living death. And sometimes people even say something like, you know, my life, and you know I'm, I'm not using the word as a swear word this morning. I'm trying to illustrate. Sometimes people will say, my life is a living hell. And at one level, they don't know what they're talking about because hell is a real place with real torment. But the reality is this. At, at one level, they're also kind of getting to the heart of it. Because life lived apart from God is like the essence of hell. That's for sure. Life lived apart from God isn't living it up. It's living death. And the nature of that life of death, as ironic as that expression is, is described in verses 2 and 3. The life of death, dead in trespasses and sins, that life is walking under, as you see in, in, in verse 2, where in time past you walked according to... Okay, uh, walking under the influence of the domination of three entities. And the rest of verse 2 goes on to say it is walking according to the course of this world. 
That's what our focus is this morning, the first of our three enemies. But then it also refers to the end of verse number two, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. That is, of course, referring to who? That's the devil. And in addition to those two, verse 3 refers to the lust of our flesh, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past in the lust of our flesh. And it goes on to refer to that a, a little more. So we have the world, the devil, and the what? And the flesh. Okay, again, the prince of the power of the air is our invisible enemy, the devil. And, and the devil appeals to our internal enemy, which is what? Which is our flesh. But now, brother, think of this. We, we have these three enemies. They're both articulated right here. And the devil, second one in the list, appeals to our flesh, the third one in the list, and he actually does it through that very first one. He does it through the medium of this world. The world is the point of contact between the devil and my flesh. The world is like, the, the world is really the information highway. We, we might even call it the evil bridge. The world is the way the devil connects with my flesh. And, and I'm not saying that just because it's a neat little, you know, a package here but because the bible again and again and again says that the world functions under the control of the devil and and sometimes these familiar bible statements kind of you know have you ever seen a coin where the edges are just kind of they've been kind of polished off and there's not a distinctive edge and sometimes statements that we've heard for all of our lives don't don't continue to have the edge they should have but 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4 refers to the devil as the God of this what? Of this world. Three times in the Gospel of John, he is referred to as the prince of this world. In 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19, we are told that the whole world lies in wickedness, or the word may well be referring to the wicked one. The God of this world, the prince of this world, the whole world lying in the wicked one. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We need to remind ourselves again and again that the world is the enemy to all that is good and all that is of God. So, so one sketch of an outline of, of the world is to note that the world is one of God and man's three primary enemies. A second kind of part of the sketch is to note that the world functions under the control of the devil himself. As a bridge that connects with and feeds and provokes my flesh. And then still right here in, in this text in Ephesians, we need to wrestle with both of the terms used by the Holy Spirit when he refers to the world, this enemy, the world. And the English word that we see here translated world, the course of this world, okay, that English word is from the Greek word cosmos. 
And again, getting the Greek words down is not a big deal, but in this case, it really helps because this Greek word sounds like an English counterpart. I mean, cosmos, I don't know what you think of, but I'm going to suggest this one because it's very close. It is, it is the word cosmetics. Our word cosmetics comes from the same root word. Now, what do we do with cosmetics? Um, if, if I was talking, you know, maybe to some elementary children, maybe there's some elementary kids that didn't use cosmetics this morning. But looking out here, I'm pretty sure that nearly all of us, if not every one of us, use cosmetics at some level this morning. What do cosmetics do? Amongst other things, they put things that are out of order in order. I barely have any hair, as you can tell. But if I didn't use some cosmetics this morning, my family at least would be embarrassed that what little I have can go in any direction. Okay? You wake up and you look in the mirror and hopefully you use some cosmetics to put things in order. Okay? And, and that's actually right at the heart of what the word means. This word cosmos conveys the idea of orderly arrangement. Um, systems. Uh, when, when word students expand on it, they talk about systems of human society that are not submitted to God, that are not interested in the honor and glory of God. God's not in the center of those, and they're not interested in God. And, and those systems of human society could be educational, they could be political, they could be some form of recreational, social, artistic, technological, and, and, and these systems, rather, what, what this word is communicating is that the culture in which we live has not just happened. Okay, culture has not just evolved. We aren't where we are just because of the give and take of people that have been living for all these centuries now. Where we are with the various systems of man, we are at where we are because there is a mastermind. It functions under, the, the systems of men function under the control of the God of this world. The prince of the power of the air. The spirit who energizes the children of disobedience. This is all communicated in that word cosmos. But there is actually a second word right here in Ephesians 2.2. 2. There is a second word in the Greek text that is sometimes translated with the English word world. And my guess is if you haven't noted it before, you may not pick it out. It is actually in that same phrase, but it's the English word course. Okay, look at that phrase. Where in time past you walked according to... The course of this world. Now, the word that is translated here, course, or, or some derivative of it, is actually translated world on 30 occasions in our New Testament. So it's not even a small matter. Think about this. I'm not going to turn because many of you know these phrases. In 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul said that Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present World, and it's not cosmos, it's the Greek word Ion. Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present Ion. In 2 Corinthians 4 4, and I mentioned it a couple times, 
It says, in whom the God of this, what? World, it's not cosmos there, it's I own. And actually, in the text that is our primary text in this series, Romans 12 and verse 2, when we are exhorted to be not conformed to this world, it's I own. Now, in some respects, the terms are virtually synonymous. I own and cosmos are virtually synonymous. Um, for instance, you can talk about um, you can talk about the prince of this cosmos or the god of this I own, and and you can see the words just used interchangeably like that. The devil again is referred to as as, as the god or the prince of both of them. However, there is a distinctive nuance to the word I own that is helpful to our understanding of our enemy. We're talking about our enemy. And this word is frequently used in reference to time. On a number of occasions, I own, which we've seen it translated world, it is actually translated on a number of occasions as forever. And it can be used to describe all of existence since the beginning of time. On other occasions, it's used to refer to specific periods of time. So, Matthew 12, verse 32, again, you don't need to turn. But when talking about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, Whosoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, nor in the world to come. And both times... This age, or the age to come, this world, or the world to come, both times it's I own. One word suit, it makes a conclusion about, you know, the, the terms when used together in this one phrase, like course of this world, I own of this cosmos. And I would really encourage you to just make that note right in your Bible somewhere. The I own of this cosmos. What do you do when both words that are translated world are used together? And Kenneth Weiss says, to distinguish the words, one could say that cosmos is the overall picture of mankind alienated from God throughout all his history. So cosmos, arching alienation from man, uh, of mankind from God. I own, he says, represents any distinct age or period of human history marked off by certain characteristics. So... Um, you can think about certain characteristics that rise, rise to the forefront and, and allow historians to kind of label them. We could talk about the industrial age. Or we could talk about the information age. Okay, and those are pretty innocuous. But the fact is that various periods of time can be marked by certain themes of lifestyles that are the passions of, of ungodly people. For instance, if, if I talked to certain adults here and I talked about the hippie era, okay? For some of you, when I talk about the hippie era, there are certain characteristics of that that you know are the way people express their godlessness, okay? Or we could talk more closely, we could talk about Generation X. Or the millennials. I mean, we can talk about boomers, right? There, there are certain time periods that our labels are used to kind of capture broader characteristics. 
And when we start talking about the ion of the cosmos, as a whole, man in sin and the systems of man have always been godless. They're not centered on God. They're not interested in the glory of God. But in any given ion, in any given period of time, there are popular ways that a particular generation expresses its godlessness. We even kind of commonly call popular ways what? We call them fads. There are fads where a particular generation expresses their godlessness in particular ways. And those very fads are part of this enemy called the world, the Ion of the cosmos, the, the age of the world, or even this, the fads of this godless world. And this kind of explanation presents us with a difficulty in discussing the subject of worldliness. And the difficulty is this, that the themes of a godless society change. Right? They fluctuate and, and they even rotate. Sometimes, sometimes we, we have a hard time saying what's going on there because fads change. And what a fad was intending to express maybe even changes. The realm of fashion is really a, a great place to kind of let us look through a window at the interaction between cosmos and Ion. Those who have studied the history and progress of, of dress and dress fashions, they actually note kind of a fluctuating and rotating themes emphasized by the fashion industry. And what they all note is that if you reveal or emphasize a certain part of, and, and, and you know, and I'm talking uh, just down to earth here to help us see it, but dress and fashion historians talk about, and dress designers, they talk about seven zones of a woman's body. They all do. And what they say is that if you reveal or emphasize a certain part of the body long enough, people become desensitized. It's no longer provocative, so you move on. Now, there are always going to be fashion styles that are just wrong because of what they leave uncovered or what they draw attention to. But there are going to be new innovations and new approaches to promoting the same godlessness. And the terms describing our enemy encompass both sides of this. Dead wrong all the time, but new innovations. And, and if you think there's nothing really kind of sinister involved... Listen to these observations from, from an unsaved, and as far as I could tell, an ungodly historian. I say ungodly because his main work is, is just full of foul language and vulgarity. So I don't have any reason to believe James Lauber is, is under much influence of, of biblical Christianity. All right, but he's an authority on dress that other people quote frequently. And this is what he wrote. Listen. 
He said women's clothes are governed by what might be called the seduction principle. That is, they are sex-conscious clothing. Men's clothes, on the other hand, are governed by the hierarchical principle. That is, they are class-conscious clothes. Balancing, he said, these two principles is the utility principle. That is, wearing clothes as a protection against the elements. But, he returns and says, in general... The purpose for clothing in women has been to make them more sexually attractive, and the purpose of men's clothes has, to adva- has been to advance their social status. And then he had a concluding, he concludes several paragraphs along this line by saying, the whole aesthetic and Puritan position is a protest against using clothing for these purposes. He said in moralist, and he means us, biblical, in, in moralist terminology, the seduction principle is the lust of the eye, the hierarchical principle is the pride of life, and therefore unsparingly condemned, and this condemnation begins very early, and he literally goes on to quote Isaiah. And, and I've just quoted to us today from a chapter entitled, This is an Ungodly Dress Historian, And the chapter in the book that I've just quoted from is entitled, The Lust of the Eye and the Pride of Life. Okay, now, I have incited these comments to to speak on dress this morning. So I'm not going any further with that. Maybe everybody says, phew. Maybe some people say, come back to it. I will. (laughs) Not in this series, but I will. Because the Bible does. But I've cited it this morning to just illustrate, again, that thoughtful observers in secular circles know that things aren't just happening. That decisions people are making are rooted in value systems and objectives. Fashion designers are doing what they're doing on purpose, and what they're doing doesn't have God in the center, and it's not about the honor and glory of God. And something's going to be a fad now, and something else three years from now, and something else after that. And so it's going to continue to rotate and fluctuate, but in no part of it is it going to have God at the center. And you don't need to turn back to to Romans now, but let me just remind you that the expression, again, is for us not to be conformed to what? Okay? Don't be conformed to this world and in that case, don't be conformed to this I own. Brethren, we are exhorted not to be conformed to the spirit of our day. We are exhorted to combat conformity to the fads by which worldlings express their godlessness. In part, this means that, that if, we just, if we have an appetite, if we have an appetite for being on the cutting edge of whatever is in, or up-to-date, or cool, or whatever the expression is, that appetite that says, I, don't, I mean, I don't want to look for a day like I'm behind the culture, I mean, I, I certainly don't want to be like, oh, I mean, that's like so old school. I mean, that's a week old. Get with it. If I have an appetite for being 
up to date with whatever's in, that will inevitably lead to increasing measures of conformity to this world. Now, brethren, knowing that the themes, again, knowing that the themes of a godless society change and fluctuate and, and rotate ought to make us cautious about adjusting ourselves to whatever is the rage in popular culture. Seriously, we, we, it, it would be very wise for us to ask questions, really. What is the world up to this time? What do we do? I cannot even remember his name right now, and, and I don't think anyone's going to be offended. What do we do every time that nut in, in North Korea opens his mouth? Okay? Or does anything? What do we do as a country? We get what? We're suspicious. What is he up to? What's he trying to do? And, and when we send more intelligence gathering at, at every level, we do that as national policy because it's good to know what our sworn enemies are doing. What are they up to? And that kind of, of suspicion that drives national intelligence is intent on protecting the light. Aren't you thankful that we have the national intelligence we have? Because it's intent on protecting our lives. And I want to say that that same stance is a wholesome stance on the part of a parent intending to, to protect their children. And it's a wholesome stance on the part of, of leadership in a local church intent on protecting the lives entrusted to their care. And, and it's a wholesome stance because it is a stance that is based on the conviction that God is telling us the truth when he declares that the world is an enemy. <clears throat> but even more than just protecting, and I've, anyone who cares is going to attempt to protect what they care about. But there's something greater than even just protecting our children. There's a greater motivation than that. Jesus said that the world hated who? Jesus said repeatedly that the world hated him. Because he testified of it that its deeds were evil. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 4 tells us that Jesus died to deliver us from this present evil world. Later in Galatians, Paul said that it was the cross who crucified the world to him and him to the world. Paul was saying, look, my loyalties are going to be to the one who hung on that cross for me, not to the world that put him on the cross. My loyalties are going to be to the one who hung on that cross for me, not to the world that put him there. And in Titus chapter 2, he said, let's get this straight. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, 
teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. The grace of God in Christ that has saved us is teaching us something inside of us. It's teaching us to deny that ungodly world and live for the one who hung on the cross to deliver us from that evil world and that wicked world. Brethren, for the honor of God, for the good of your own soul, for the good of you living in the center of the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God for your life, don't sit there and be naive about the pressure the world is bringing to you and seek God for his grace and strength to combat conformity to the world. Would you just bow your heads and close your eyes? I know that this morning we've... I mean, I mentioned one arena in passing by way of illustration, but we haven't, beyond that, delved into specifics. We're really trying to just sketch out an outline. But to challenge a mindset, what is my mindset? 